0: The title for the talk this evening um, is "Polarization: How Christ Narrates Unity." Um, so I think it's going to be a really, you know, fruitful and relevant discussion. Hopefully tonight um, for all of us, um, especially as we um, come up on you know times of learning how to fruitfully dialogue with one another. Um, so I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker for this evening. Um, I've actually known him for several years. Um, I got to work with him a bit when I was in my undergrad at Notre Dame in the Center for Social Concerns, um, which he is now the Executive Director, Um, so Father Kevin Sandberg, um, is a priest from the Congregation of Holy Cross. Um, Those of you who know Notre Dame know that's the order that founded um, the university. Um, As I mentioned, currently serving as the Executive Director for the Center for Social Concerns on campus. Um, He received his Bachelor of Arts and his Master of Divinity, Bachelor of Arts in Economics and Master of Divinity from um, the University of Notre Dame and his M.A. in Theology from, get this right, the Graduate Theological Union and Jesuit School of Theology, and his Ph.D. in Religion Education from Fordham University. So brings with him a lot of qualifications. Um, and his research interests include theological reflection, pedagogies of compassion, neglect of listening, and its restoration through religious education. So that'd sound, those great interest to me, so I think that would be creating a very great discussion this evening. Um, Prior to his work in ministry, um, he was a trust officer with the Northern Trust Bank and a financial economist with the U.S. Treasury Department. Um, And again, he was also the founding director of the young adult community at St. Clement Church in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood. So he's um, helped get Theology of Tap started started there, and so he was very eager to be able to come back and. be present to this community here. And now, without further ado, I would like to welcome Father Kevin Sandberg.
1: I'm old enough to need this to walk properly, too. <laughs>
0: oh, that
1: long. It is appropriate to start on a joke. We're in a bar after all, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, a better joke would be that if I were actually not here and I were still a financial economist at the U.S. Treasury I would be playing on a softball team and our team, and this was many years ago, name then was called Mega Dad. I can't imagine what it would be called today. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's also appropriate that uh, as a Holy Cross priest, I disclose I've been traveling this summer, and you'll see here because there's never um, more than 10 of us in the air at one time, but just 10. So the topic of tonight's talk polarization when I said that was my talk to my brethren in community they asked are you for it or against it so that's really to the heart of it I suspect in terms of our cultural attitudes but what I would like us to be able to do is to walk away with a sense of self that doesn't choose For ourselves somebody else's narrative for us. Does that make sense? I want you to be able to articulate your own narrative as a person of faith, as a person continuing to explore and discover faith, as a person who is loved in your utter dignity by God, by a God who will go to no end to uh, stop at no end to find you but now more particularly the idea of polarization. When I first came to Holy Cross 20 years ago to pursue what I understood was my vocation without any idea of all the things that Sean listed right there, I was asked this question and it was astounding to me then and and still remains so. So, are you liberal or conservative? Well, I didn't know what to answer and I didn't know that it wasn't a test, to be sure, but I didn't know that I would have been seen as as a little bit um, smug in my response, but I said theological. I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, go right down the middle there, but that was partly a future vocation. But it's fascinating that I have discovered that that is a representative question of that time. Now, that was a different time, we'll talk about that. But. At the same time, at another university, a current theologian was asked, so what is your position on immigration reform? The person is an Hispanic, liberal or conservative? Well, he didn't know what to think either. And he said, I stand with the tradition. A third person from that same era, this person was at a conference at Harvard, was asked the same question, are you a liberal? or a conservative Catholic." She didn't know what to say. She says, I don't know. I'm just a suburban Catholic. (laughs) And there's a lot of truth in every one of those statements right there. It isn't necessarily representative of what Christ might narrate for us. And that's what I want us to be able to walk away with tonight, an encounter with Christ. Theology and TAP offers an encounter with each other. Think about Christ being here somewhere. Think about Christ being the one who you choose to narrate alongside of you, your understanding of the world, of the church, of yourself. So is that all there is? Liberal, or conservative, one or the other. The three of us that I just described hadn't yet used that label to understand ourselves. In large part I think because the terms didn't do justice to the complexity in which we understood ourselves. It did not appreciate our understanding of reality. But we had been suspected of an identity not our own, liberal or conservative. Each of us was about your age when we were confronted with the dichotomy of liberal or conservative. Since then conversation in the church has come to call this phenomenon polarization. Yet but before I describe that term let me point out an equally important phenomenon regarding polarization, namely the sociological evidence that the majority of your generation rejects this category and that is a tremendous sign of hope for the church, for society and humanity. Now here's the reason why I surmise and I will present you reject that category. It's because you are the generation who represents those wearied from the culture wars that predominated in the 80s and the 90s and the naught era. You are the war weary and you reject that category itself. At least the sociologists tell us that your generation in large part rejects polarization and doesn't necessarily even understand what the concept might mean but that's a particular challenge also your generation, the millennial generation, born from 1980 to 2000 roughly, okay, may be the force then that leads the church out of its own polarization and here's what's really important about the church doing that it isn't for the church's own sake, the church has always been on the avant-garde of social regeneration if you can lead the church out of polarization, you then can lead society out of polarization. It's a challenge that I offer you. You can accept it, but it's a little bit easier than I think you might think, especially if you have a natural affinity for that war weariness, if you reject that category of polarization. So my goal tonight is just twofold, to explore this possibility with you, right? and I think I can do it in just two basic ways. We'll talk for about another half hour, okay? And that is what we as a society experience under polarization, let's explore that, and how we as a church are called to counteract that narrative. Is that fair enough? Sound good? So, to understand polarization, you have to understand the culture wars. Okay, I'm not gonna get so deeply into those. Why? that's to feed into that false narrative, or at least a narrative that you don't necessarily subscribe to. So let me do this in an alternative way. Remember your generation is the war-weary. You reject the culture wars. You might yourself not, but in general your generation does. So rather than lay out the contours of the culture wars from the 80s, 90s and the Nought era, I find it more instructive to note an upcoming anniversary of war's end, which could be um, um, instructive not just for us today, but for the United States and provides a bit of a, a way forward. And that is the 100th anniversary of World War I's end, less than 100 days away on November 11th, in the United States called Veterans Day, in Europe called Armistice Day. Initially, it was celebrated as Armistice Day in the United States, and I'll get back to that later. World War I came to mind for me because I had the occasion to be in London this summer, and what struck me was the very public nature of their commemoration of the war's end. Then I remembered being equally struck when I was in Paris four years ago, when they were commemorating the beginning of World War I there in Paris the displays focused on the atrocities of war and the changes it wrought in daily life any fans of Downton Abbey of yore you'll recognize the sweeping change that raw war wrought in Britain London focused on the causes and mechanisms of war but it also added an important component the heroism that led to breakthroughs in the war. That's an important category for us, right? Because we're attuned to sacrifice. So we'll come back to that notion of what heroism might be asked of us relative to ending this war, this polarization. What was interesting in London was that their commemoration includes an enormous outdoor sign of letters eight foot tall that says thank you and it's from this generation and future generations to the generation of veterans and those who lived for the war. And people were encouraged to sign it as if it were a card in an outdoor open space along the Thames. I bring you some of these details because as we'll talk later about Veterans Day and Armistice Day, you might not have plans yet but I hope you are beginning to make them. Okay. Now I don't want to belabor the point relative to a history of World War I But you might remember that its touchstone is typically understood as the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was in 1914 in Sarajevo the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the largest land entity as a political unit in Europe at the time. He is assassinated alongside of his wife and consequently, Austria Hungary declares war on Serbia a month later. Who's Serbia's ally? Russia. And Russia then gets involved. And because Germany is the ally of the Austro Hungarian Empire, they invade France. So you end up with, if you recall from your history, the Central Powers Russia, uh, excuse me, Germany, Austria-Hungary and other countries and then the Allied Powers. The United States doesn't come into World War I until 1917, a year and a half before its end. So let's look at the war briefly from the standpoint of the British, who at the time constituted the largest empire on the planet. One in every four persons was a British citizen. Through its far-flung subjects, it actually wasn't able to amass the necessary necessary means to uh, prosecute the war. But you can imagine that people in India and in Africa and Australia and in Canada weren't particularly interested in fighting a war that was taking place in Europe but to begin most people have a sense of patriotism and duty and that's what galvanized the forces but quickly concern and fear become important in people's discernment of the war concern for their own safety fear for the future of the world those things lie just below the surface of duty they're easily stoked toward hatred of the enemy. So the Germans then created tremendous atrocities as they went through Belgium to France and what you ended up seeing was that the mechanisms of war quickly overwhelm the sense of civilization so that the war for the Allied powers, for instance, quickly becomes an effort to defend civilization itself. Now, you might associate World War I with trench warfare. As the combatant nations understandably sought to break the deadlock of trench warfare, they pursued technological means, the worst of which wasn't necessarily poisonous gas because technology was readily able to adapt to that, both in terms of treatment as well as protection, like masks. In fact, what happened was that the industrial complex entered the scene and created what has been described as a protective storm of steel and fire. And it was that industrial mechanism that was able to prosecute the war to such devastating effects. Now imagine yourself in the midst of that. That's bad enough. When people are at home, they're paying the cost of war. The loss of loved ones, taxes rise, women enter the workforce to greater numbers because there are fewer men there. Personal freedoms are restricted, like letters and newspapers are being censored. Equipment is commandeered, industries are nationalized and strangers become subject to suspicion. In warfare, all those changes are accepted oftentimes as a necessary sacrifice. Until 1917, when the soldiers, and the U.S. entered in 1917, but the soldiers became weary of the war and so did the people back home. People begin to protest, people begin to desert People begin to surrender en masse. People begin to alter the course of the war. And I go through this lengthy description because you are analogous to those people in 1917. Weary of the culture wars, at least this is what the sociologists suggest, and ready to change the course of its prosecution. So there's six stages in the war that are maybe instructive for us. The first is the generation of fear. The second is an apologia for the war. That is, it's defending civilization. The third is that there's a discipline that has to be enforced to keep people in the war. There's also technology that develops to prosecute the war. But finally, the war effort becomes undermined because people are tired of the death, people are tired of the maiming, people have felt that dignity itself has been undermined. And then, if we can fast forward a hundred years, there is a commemoration of its end. Now I'll hint again to the fact that at the end I want to talk a little bit about Armistice Day and Veterans Day. The United States in 1954 abandoned Armistice Day in favor of Veterans Day. Why? Because of the defeat of the American forces in the Korean War. And it was a way of changing our perspective on war and changing the way we received those home that felt perhaps like they were part of a defeated force. But what's fascinating about Armistice Day is that it's focused on peace not defeat, nor on the soldiers, but all of society that suffers and all of society that envisions a changed way forward. So, the war. What does polarization look like? And I'm not speaking specifically about the church. Well, it looks like war. And that war is hashed out in the daily headlines over and over and over again. It looks like hashtag BLM versus hashtag BLM, as if you can't be both for black lives and blue lives. That was very prominent two summers ago in the United States. It looks like red state versus blue state when you see a map of the electoral college outcome in a United States presidential election. As if all people in Texas are red, Republican, and all people in Illinois are blue Democrat. This is problematic and this is the polarization that people I think are weary of, being typecast as fitting in one category or another, those categories being opposite from one another. So polarization is characterized by a description of extremes that are composed of things that have a natural repulsion toward one another that clash otherwise with one another, that are at an impasse or in political deadlock and partisanship. The metaphors that's used to describe polarization is that it's a cancer, uh, this is relative to the church, a cancer on the church, a wound, that it's a virulent strain of secularization, that it's a pathogen affecting our civic discourse. So rather than move toward moderation and compromise and dialogue and bipartisanship, polarization divides people into two opposing groups. But why describe this phenomenon as polarization instead of partisanship? That's the more fascinating thing. And you can see it in the headlines as I mentioned earlier. Today there's voting in a handful of states. So yesterday the New York Times had the headline In Ohio election, Republicans test a midterm rescue plan. Polarization. The article goes on to describe a disaffected traditional Republican voter and says that Republicans say their messaging is intended to polarize the electorate and exploit the National Democratic Party's leftward shift. Jolting, complacent conservatives. So you see, it's about voter turnout, to a degree. Alternatively, if you're keeping sides, Politico, the magazine about politics, which actually tries to do a balanced job, had this headline four days ago. If you're a pro-life Democrat, you know you're standing alone. The narrative there is that pro-life Democrats are political unicorns. They're misfits in the party. Now it's fascinating in that vein of thought to recognize that regardless of party affiliation voters today give abortion place number 10 or 13 in the ranking of the most critical issues that motivate them when they vote. So it's lower than the economy, it's lower than terrorism, it's lower than health care and immigration across party lines. Finally, to state here, maybe what's almost the obvious, is that the term polarization therefore isn't an eternally generated church or theological term. When we talk about polarization in the church or when we talk about polarization in society, whether it's politics or otherwise, we're borrowing a term from the field of political science. And in US politics, two things prevail. It's a two-party system, hence polls. And since we don't have a parliamentary system, the winner takes all. But what's fascinating about this today is that in fact, the country is almost evenly divided, not at polar opposites. And so somebody is narrating an understanding of ourselves and our society, and it's not for our benefit. If you look at the last 15 presidential elections, that goes all the way back to John F. Kennedy in 1916, half of them are decided within seven percentage points of 50%. That doesn't sound like a polarized electorate to me. Six of those elections favored a victor without a majority in the popular vote. Another six were one with less than 54% of the popular vote. The point is, is that because it's so close, the tactic is to polarize. Make people look like they are pushed apart. Make people look like there is a great difference. That there is an enemy in their midst. For we have not had so many common enemies since the end of World War II to to unite us. We have been made, through polarization, enemies of each other. And that's the thing that we have to fight against. So, what we might do is go through those different stages of the war and examine where we are. The second stage I mentioned was that, after the first stage of constructing fear, or constructing an enemy, right? is an apologia, that war, cultural or military, defends a way of life. So what's the way of life that's being defended here? What's fascinating, if you look at it from this perspective, is that polarization is not pursued to convince, let alone convert the enemy it's a tactic to galvanize the like-minded with emotional intensity and thereby maintain a way of life. Whether that's guns and the right to abort a pregnancy or funding for the arts or the right to pollute the environment. Now in the church what we find historically is differences of opinions that have been trumped up to polarization. We might begin with the Hallmark decision in 1968 called Humana Vitae that birth control was not legitimate, artificial birth control was not legitimate, upon which many, many people dissented. We might then continue to see in the next decade, the 70s, the Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court that gave people permission, took away the illegality of abortion. And any number of debates ensued from there throughout the 80s and the 90s. We might go to the 1990s when in fact the church really entered what is known as the liturgy wars. What happened then? With people's increased mobility, we no longer had territorial parishes to which we were bound. We chose ideological parishes. We ended up at a parish where they sang the songs we liked, not the guitar, but the organ, right? The official instrument, now I'm caricaturizing, but these are elements of it, the official instrument of the liturgy, right? And bygone days, would only be remembered by your grandparents, if you were lucky, that there was once a national parish where Poles worshiped together, where Belgians worshiped together, where Italians worshiped together, largely because of the language, right? But that was actually another way of having a narrative of identity enforced, but that kept somebody else at bay. Within the church then, there's any number of hallmarks in our own I would say adoption of this notion of warfare, of polarization. And even in the church there has been the practice, the third stage, of enforcing discipline. So that when Cardinal Bernadine of Chicago began what he called a common ground initiative for Catholics who stood on different sides of issues, not necessarily opposed or polarized, he was chastised by other members of the hierarchy. The discipline at the time was to enforce orthodoxy and so conversation actually broke down in the church. The fourth stage of warfare I said was pursuing technological advantage. Well, today that's the digital world And it's misinformation that is really the technological advantage. Millennials, however, don't play a complicit role in that. And that's the most fascinating thing, and that's one of the reasons why. Not only is it the case that millennials only ascribe to polarized views 10 to 20%, so a very, very small minority. Millennials don't have enough information about Catholic faith, the sociologists tell us, to be involved with misinformation. It isn't simply that they don't have enough information to pray with misinformation. They say that millennials don't care enough about the information. That millennials are indifferent to the structure of the church, to its policies and to its procedures as well as to its doctrine whether that's social or dogmatic. Millennials the sociologists suggest are subject to a disorientation that you simply you as in terms of millennial generation not you individually don't care because you don't know enough to care and aren't concerned about that because you have grown up again your generation with the view that religious faith is personalized privatized and not institutionalized and shared. So why does polarization exhibit such outsized influence and resonance if you are a generation that is pushing back against that? Those are some of the reasons but another one is simply that war changes a landscape for a very very long long time and you're not in control of that landscape. My argument in part is you need to have the information to control that landscape. You need to assert the narrative that Christ narrates unity. And if you were to look at some of the literature on polarization you'd be surprised to find how infrequently the name Christ shows up. The body of Christ? Maybe but simply as a metaphor. I actually would be pressed to use Jesus, even more than Christ, to make sure that we're dealing not with either um, a theological name, but a person that we recognize. So, how does Christ narrate unity? Well, he asks the question, whose are you, not what are you? And that's a really important question. If you are ever in the interview and somebody says, so, are you liberal or conservative? Your response might be, well, the question isn't about not what am I, the question is whose am I or to whom do I belong? Jesus, you know, had any number of opponents, critics, enemies, persecutors. He was not immune to a polarized environment. So polarization isn't something that we should avoid We have to make sure we use the term correctly and it diagnoses what's taking place correctly. But why did Jesus have opponents, critics, and enemies, not to mention his ultimate persecutors? Because he was welcoming and accepting people who were not supposed to be there at the table within the community, whose behavior put them outside the law. But the fourth stage, or the um, the fifth stage of the, the war, people become weary of it. And so this is why I want us to examine how Christ narrates unity through the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. I don't have to repeat it. It's an act in three parts. A story about a trust fund baby who When he comes of age, demands his inheritance, promptly squanders it, and comes to his senses. Is it really a story about that trust fund baby? Is it even a story about his brother? Christ doesn't tell stories about other people. He tells stories about the kingdom of God. He tells stories about the God who is bringing that kingdom to fruition. So first and foremost, the story of the prodigal son which has had that name for 1,500 years, is not about the son who dissipated his life. It is not about the elder brother who refused to join the party. It's about the father who went out to both of them. The three acts. The departure. I'll take that check, please. Often seen as succumbing to the ravages of sin should be better understood as a loss of identity. Because he loses his family identification, leaves his father. He loses his ethnic identification. He goes over to the Gentiles. He loses his religious identification. He works as a swineherd. No Jew would do that. He comes to his senses We call that grace. He returns, act two. And here's where the father enters in. What are the significant elements of that scene? Well there's really three that help author identity. A ring, a robe, and sandals. The father runs out of the house seeing his son, puts on his finger a ring so that he can act with his father's authority. It's a signet ring. He puts a robe on him, another symbol of authority, and he puts sandals on his feet, a sign that you are not a slave or a servant. The father reauthors the younger son's identity. And that's the almost important key that we tend to miss. The father acts to reauthor identity, the father narrates unity between that younger brother and the elder brother in the next scene, which you might call ambivalence. Departure, return, ambivalence. And who's ambivalent? The elder brother. I tell you, when you preach and you walk out and a prisoner says, oh, Father, it's so wrong that the elder brother got treated that way. He's like, oh, darn it, you missed the point, right? Because the ambivalence of the elder brother is left hanging, and that's the hook that keeps us in the narrative so that the father can continue to author, reauthor our identity. And listen to the way in which the elder brother treats his father. Is it any different than his younger brother? He's quite impertinent. Listen, no young man in the ancient world could speak to his father that way, at least the Jewish law said that the father could put a rebellious son to death. The elder son smolders in resentment and refuses to go in. He disavows his brother, not calling him his brother, calling him your son. I think he's just as guilty as the younger brother. When it comes to sin, if we understand sin to be alienation. If you stick with the title of the prodigal son, you don't need act three. And that's really problematic because there's no hook for our engagement with the story re-narrating our identity. And so what do we understand about the father? I want to propose the category of affection. The father has a profound experience of affection. It's not morality that's the center of this story. The morality of the younger brother or the morality of the elder brother. It's the affection of the father for his children and his desire to reauthor their identity with him. I use the category of affection because I'm quite taken with the way in which the cultural critic and Kentucky farmer and conservationist Wendell Berry describes that term. Wendell Berry says in his Jefferson Lecture of 2012 that affection is such love for a place and its life that you want to preserve it and remain in it. If you apply it to the father in the prodigal son, if you apply it to God, You recognize such love for my creation, such love for my children, that I want to preserve their identity as my children. That I want them to remain in that identity. Wendell Berry, in that lecture, goes through this dynamic that's applicable to us and actually allows you a way through, for society, the culture wars because he describes people as either boomers or stickers. He adopts these categories from his mentor, the writer Wallace Stegner. But Stegner's categories are instructive for me because I find with my undergraduates, from whom you're not that far removed, more of them by twice as many are stickers than boomers. And they're all high-powered intellects at the University of Notre Dame. More than 50% of them want to go home. They want to resume life with the community from which they came. They don't want to go off to New York and Brooklyn and buy freight trade. That isn't necessarily what they're about. And this is a real, what's the word for it? Treasure, a charism of your generation that has to be understood and cultivated. So boomers are those who pillage and run. That sounds like the elder, excuse me, the younger brother. Stickers are those who settle. But they are also moved by affection and marked by commitment. And the elder brother was not marked by commitment. He understood himself as a servant to the father, not a son. There's no commitment in that. It's all a cash exchange. No different than his younger brother. So, the elder brother is as guilty of false standards and incomplete accounting of himself as the younger brother was relative to his father. And what we can learn from them is that the stress of the parable is on the father as the one who finds. You have to keep in mind that this parable is one of three. It follows the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, hence it's often called the parable of the lost son. But in each of those parables, the title of which we're used to is misleading. It's the father who seeks, it's the father who finds, it's the father who reanimates or reauthors. My son was dead and now he is alive. What could be instructive for society is for a generation like yourself to really understand what has made you distinctive as a generation, as millennials? What has it to be your charism to offer society? Each individual we say has a charism. A generation has a charism so long as you share that with one another and allow that to become something institutional. So though you may feel that you're subject to the privatized uh, personal religion that is predominant in the United States, The real call to you by this parable, as well as the need of society, is to allow that charism to emerge. The parable vindicates Jesus' fellowship with the outcasts, right? It challenges the Jewish elders. That's the elder son who thinks he's got it all together, right? You are the conveyor of this parable. This is critical that you challenge the elders who describe our society as polarized, our church as polarized. You may vote for a Republican. You may vote for Trump. You may vote for Kasich. You may vote for Holcomb. You may vote for Jackie Walorski. You may vote for Joe Donnelly. You may have voted for Hillary Clinton. You may have voted for Bernie Sanders. None of that is the whole of who you are, but somebody has narrated a story to indicate that. You have to reject this. But do you reject in a way that's polarizing? That's the trick. And that's the turn to another parable, the wheat and the tares. You know that parable too. But what you might not know is that the nature of the tares, the weeds, is such that when it's first growing, It's indistinguishable from the wheat." And not only that, but Jesus narrates the parable to indicate that they are intertwined and that I will not take one out prematurely. They will show their seed and then we will know them by their works. But until then, what we work toward is conversion. What we work toward is metanoia. So the church remains A corpus mixture, a mixture of good and bad. That can't be problematic if we do an examination of conscience every night and realize, I was not who I could have been today. If we have an honest and authentic spirituality, we become the parable of the wheat and the tares, And we recognize that to root out the evil, I may do away with the good. That was Thomas More's advice not to do so. And so what I want to suggest is as a symbol of conversion is that when it comes to November 11th, about 97 days away, it'll be after the election, who knows what the midterms will be. You'll look at CNN and you'll see red and blue, and that's all you'll see, right? I want you to be mindful that in a few days after that, when we celebrate Veterans Day, and Europe celebrates Armistice Day, a 100 years ago, peace became possible. Harmony became possible once again. Maybe the best way to remember it is this, that when the United States entered World War I in 1917, General Pershing, made a pilgrimage to a very sacred place. Any fans of Hamilton? He made a pilgrimage to the tomb of Lafayette. And he is famous for having said, Lafayette, new Volwa, Volwa, we are here. We are here. We have come back to pay our debt. But the debt that's being paid isn't, first and foremost, the blood of sacrifice. It is a debt to the freedom from autocracy. It is the freedom from fear. It is liberty. And in the Christian sense, liberty is always not just liberty or freedom from something, but liberty, freedom for something, for life in the spirit. What I beg you to do is to claim that life in the spirit that is the charism of your generation. That you spurn polarization and the culture wars and that you recognize however much information you have or you don't you have the heart to convert not just a society but a world because your generation is elsewhere, and elsewhere is also tired of the culture wars.
0: Well, I hope you all had some fruitful discussion at your tables.
2: At this time,
0: we're going to come back together as a large group, um, invite Father Kevin back up, and hopefully provide a chance for you guys to just kind of share some of your um, thoughts on your discussions. If you had some you know, really good, strong points that came out of your discussion, please feel free to share those. Um, I will have, so we are recording this session, so... Um, if you have something to you say, you have a question for Father Kevin, um, wait for either myself or... Um, Catherine. My, Catherine. Catherine. Um, in the back, we'll have a microphone. Uh, we'll come to the microphone, so just be patient um, with us. Um, and we will be kind of bring that around. So I will now turn it back over to Father Kevin. Thanks, Sean.
1: I really wanna know if this relationship is gonna stand a
0: chance, right? <laughs> so we'll see who tackled that question let me set you up for this part
1: of the conversation in this way. What leads to the armistice between the younger brother and the elder brother? Is their fight with each other or with their image of the father? Right? Because what the father did was come out of a celebration. sign that the kingdom is marked by joy. And in Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis says, joy is the source of our life. Joy is the source of evangelization. The father's joy at the younger son's return is his impetus to the armistice he wants to broker with the elder brother. way of beginning to to look at this, right? The other is to just remember that polarization is a tactic that's being used to narrate your life as either liberal or conservative, red or blue, X or Y, and somebody else is making money off of you doing that. (laughs) So the more you allow them to do that, the more you're in somebody's pocket because it's a perpetual feedback loop. The more you allow the story of joy to reauthor your identity, the less likely you're going to be in somebody's pocket. So, who wants to share the first thing about your conversations here? I see a hand. Oh, you've already volunteered. I mean, I don't have anything I mean,
0: I guess I have a question Yeah.
2: Is it okay? Good. Um, I guess my question would be: How do we um, how do we approach ideas when people like kind of take ideas as identity, and they feel personally attacked because they can't separate ideas and like their how they perceive themselves through those ideas.
1: The first step would be to recognize that what the father does with both his sons is to listen. He doesn't dominate the conversation. He doesn't re-narrate without their permission. He allows them to have a pen in their hand, right? And so the listening is a device that he's modeling it for them, right, by which they come to unknow what they thought they knew. So there's a certain humility that the person has to have in that individual. And by which they come to value differently the exchange more than the product that might come out of the exchange. So look to the image of the father as a listener and recognize that our goal isn't to enforce somebody else's conversion. Our goal is to demonstrate the joy that comes out of the That's what the father feeds off of. So you know, at, at one point, it, the, the conversation could break down, I would say, as a result of that. But others might have other suggestions based on their conversations and or of other things they want to say relative to the conversations you've had at your tables.
2: Just to touch on the communion piece, I think that's a really interesting example. And I think I, and I, I think our group really kind of dove, dove into that because, in some sense, it's interesting to see, uh, and I think I see this mostly among Along, uh, pardon me, among millennials, in the sense that, like it's the commun- communion, right? The mass, the liturgy, which is never ending, right? We're constantly coming back into the liturgy, and this is this place of unity, right? We're coming to the table together as the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, and it becomes this source of ideological warfare in some sense. Um, I think there's an irony there, and I think it really touch. I think it really um, is illuminated by your discussion of. Sin is alienation; that we're alienating each other at the table of unity. And I think, in some sense, and I think you know, a lot of that is grounded in like goodness. Like we, I think there, we are talking an example of like kind of people judging like, oh, you received on the hand, you're disrespectful. And it's like, okay, so there's a good intention behind that. You want would want to presume of reverence, and so uh, it's just been contorted away from. Kind of that that goodness of in, of what it, you know what reverence looks like, I guess. Um, so I think when it comes to this idea of like true communion and all this, I think there is kind of in terms of like meeting people where they're at. There is like a goodness we can if we can look deep enough, we might be able to find like oh I see like a goodness in your in this position that I am feeling very alienated from uh, in in this in this encounter or this sharing of sin that we're encountering at the say like communion or at this place of unity. That was long-winded, sorry. Oh, no, it's a great
1: way of describing <laughs> that. If the wheat and the tears are intertwined, there's not a distinct difference between them and that the goodness is what sustains its life. It wouldn't be able to be sustained otherwise, but that we might not be the ones who can make the separation perfectly between them. Yeah. And I would also just acknowledge that this has been a problem in the church for millennia, not necessarily with regard to the form in which somebody receives communion. Right? There were debates about the species under which people would receive communion. Right? And who could receive communion is even more substantial as a debate than the way in which somebody would receive communion. So it's a real sign that we've gotten ourselves into some minutiae. And we've missed the big picture.
2: Yeah. Yep. Here's yep. Hey, Father Kevin. Yeah, I think you're moving already in the direction I was gonna of my question. So certainly, we yeah, we would exist as the corpus per mixtum, the weed and the weeds. And there are maybe acceptable p- opinions. There's a there's an a-, a gray area. But then, how do we allow for distinction or an ability to draw certain lines and still be unified without simply saying, well, this is how I see it, and that's how you see it, and create some sort of uh, false surface unity without maybe delving deep into uh, conversation.
1: Yeah, I think that the phrase, which is perhaps the least applied because of its challenge of not dichotomy nor polarization, but um, opposites is unity amidst diversity and one of the most profound ways for Catholics to approach that is to meet somebody from a different right within the Catholic Church and to appreciate that there is unity amongst the 22 23 rights for thank you <laughs> uh, the 24 rights and that That is the very nature of our identity as Catholic, the Catholicity, that we do that. So, but even more important is this, and it's um, a critical piece of religious practice. As religious communities get smaller, they're merging. We will not have a happy time when we have merged unless we've worked and walked and lived alongside of each other before we do that institutionally. So what people have to recognize is that they might not have a capacity to bridge that difference because they're not alongside people with difference in whom they actually ultimately have a very common good and with whom they actually have a very common destiny. Yeah. So I, I lament the fact that I grew up in a very Jewish part of South Florida, right? I grew up in the sixth borough of New York. I have no Jewish friends. I barely have a Protestant friend, right? And so my life is the worst for all of that because I cannot appreciate the fuller nature of the human expression of its search for God and its response to God's search for us. And I would just say one last thing is that we have to be mindful is that we talk about the lost, that language is so ingrained in us, it's the finder that we have to really be focused on. It's so easy for us to make the jump from loss to difference or difference to loss. In fact, our focal point is that there's a finder, that there's a unifier, that there is a a father in this way of the parable.
0: I'm curious if you could address the question, uh, hopping down to number four on the list, yeah. is uh, we, we were talking about how uh, the question comes across a little bit with a bias in the sense that most people who are millennials are kind of tired of just being called millennials, ah. millennials, millennials. Yeah. And so like we're a generation of people who don't want to be a generation. Ah, and fair enough. so maybe you could just like talk about that briefly and how we deal with the generational gap and understanding that way.
1: Yeah. Mm. One would be, I apologize for that (laughs) enforcement, but will give the further apologia that, in fact, the social construct only goes so far. right? And two, if one doesn't want to be identified as a generation, but almost individually, then ask yourself how you understand your grandparents. Because you have preconceived notions of what your grandparents can do, oughtn't do. Bring that down to your parents. Bring that down to children. So recognize that it isn't so much generational. It's preconceived notions of what the other. And I think that's what you're really looking for. How do we break free from somebody else's preconceived notion? And part of what I've wanted to do for you is to demonstrate, well then put your narrative in God's hands. Allow God to narrate for you and reauthor. If you do that, then you'll allow God to reauthor and re-narrate somebody else through you. Meaning you'll allow God to change your understanding of somebody else. Because God has a very different understanding of that person than you might. And that's a real challenge to us. We have to seed ground to another person and to God. And then we actually come into a fuller possession of our own selves too. So that's the suggestion I'd make there, yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering if um, you could uh, speak about some practical tips for engaging in conversation um, about challenging polarized topics with someone who thinks perceivably radically different, yeah. uh, differently than you. And what are, um, what are some practical tips for building unity? Um,
1: the first one is one of the reasons why I put question one down, and that is, if you don't go into a conversation knowing what your values are, you try and find them in the conversation, and you can very quickly become very defensive about the ones that you only stumbled upon. So the first tactic is you've got to go in with self-knowledge. And that's our spiritual life. That is our spiritual life right there, okay? The second tactic would be I am not a professional at this. And neither is the other person. And so I'm going to have mercy on the conclusions that we draw right here. And if we actually state to each other I'm not a professional debater. I don't have a professional license in conversation. (laughs) We're all amateurs at this. I think we'll have a very different approach to this. I would add there was something really fascinating in uh, America Magazine about six months ago. And it was from a current college student who had gone through forensic debates in high school and had learned the full gamut of them. And he said that the first form of debate was on topics but quickly people tried to win the debate by amassing so much knowledge that they just spewed out gibberish because the knowledge they put wasn't relevant to the argument, right? Then what they did was they moved to rhetorical persuasion, but that goal was still to win the debate. And then finally, Ted Turner of CNN said, we gotta change this, and he proposed a public forum And in the public forum, the debate rules basically are plain speaking, jargon free. If we use the clue of that one, where there's a certain humility in the conversation, and the goal isn't to win, but to discover, and mutual discovery is a lot more exciting than individual discovery, then I think there's some tactics that will get us ahead.